Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is your host, Sarah Bowen Shea, and I'm joined today by Ellison Wiest. Welcome, Ellison. Good morning. So, all right, Ellison, you are the book bully, to remind folks. So what have you been reading lately that you've been loving, that you've been hating? Loving, loving, loving short stories. And I know a lot of readers are not big short story readers, but I have two that I was gobsmacked by. Mm, My favorite word. Love that. Love it. (laughs) Um, And the first one is a debut by a young man named Callan Wink. How do you spell Uh, that first name? uh, C-A-L-L-A-N, Wink. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's actually a fly fishing guide from Montana. Uh, He looks like he's about 17 years old. Oh, it's so funny because I thought, oh, I bet he's hot. Oh, he is. He is. Sorry, (laughs) Callan. Wink, wink, nod, nod. I had to throw that in there, honey. Uh, But his debut is called Dog Run Moon. Uh And the stories are phenomenal. Um, I was just sort of blown away. Apparently, he's he's written uh, several of these stories were published years ago uh, in the New Yorker, and uh, people have been really anticipating this collection with good reason. And then I loved uh, Fortune Smiles, another collection of short stories by Adam Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, Really enjoyed that. And then this seems to be the year of uh, dysfunctional sibling get togethers. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've read Tessa Hadley. She's um, mm-hmm. a British author who also writes short stories. And in the past, I've liked her short stories more. But uh, she has a new book called The Past. And it's about four siblings getting together uh, in an kind of older home that used to belong to their grandparents and they have a lot of history with this house uh so the weekend that they're there they have to rather the three weeks that they're there they have to decide what are they going to do with this house but there are also as there always are with siblings a lot of undercurrents uh, and tensions and and histories that need to be explored mm-hmm. um so i enjoyed that and right now in fact yesterday i started a book that i really think is uh, it's going to be a hit, and I think you would like this. It's called The Nest, mm. and it's a debut from Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. Cynthia, I hope I got that correct. Um, but it is also about four siblings uh, who come together over The Nest, which is a uh, large fortune that their father uh, put aside for them Uh, with the understanding that it would be divided amongst them when the youngest turns 40. Hmm. Uh, But there is a tragedy that happens uh, in the year leading up to that mark. And this uh, sort of divides the the siblings. Uh, It's it's really just sort of... um, compulsive reading i i I read about 170 pages yesterday wow look at you well it's 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 a good one nice nice well i was on a bit of a reading jag over the weekend it's not not a new book by any means um but they uh, it is the first in an eight book series by laurie r king the beekeeper's apprentice i've heard so many good things about that and yet i've never read it oh really oh it's funny because i didn't tell you beforehand that that's what i'm reading i thought oh my gosh what if ellison like didn't like it or um so it is um they're mysteries Mm -hmm. and um which as i learned are kept in a separate part of the library than fiction there's a whole mystery section um so uh they are it's from it's i think that book is 20 or 21 years old but like i said it's a first in eight book series and they are about um kind of a middle-aged sherlock holmes and his when the when he meets this um the protagonist she is um maybe 15 or 16 and they meet out um in sussex he's out at his country house with mrs hudson being his housekeeper and um so he takes um her under his wing and and um kind of grooms her as his protege and so it's there's a couple cases and and um 
it you know it certainly moves along in terms of the plot but I, I just find the writing is so such talented writing and, and really wonderful use of words and imagery and um, it's a far higher caliber than I was expecting it to be. I hate to say it, but sometimes you think series, it's like, ah, oh, it's going to be churned out. Like, hey, tip it Outlander. Like, could right. they, could they be worse books? Okay. Right. Like right. write me hate mail people. I don't care. Those yeah, books exactly. are pure drivel. Yeah. I made uh, it through the first one, but the second one, I was like, what? Uh, I, I, I couldn't I even can... make it. And uh, Jack and I loved that show. Yes. I mean, that was hot, yes. hot oh, television. Yes. Hello. And I completely, the book so turned me off of it. I, we don't even watch it anymore. I'm just like, oh, nope, goodness. garbage, not doing it. Goodness, goodness. You know? Um, so anyway, yeah. So, so, and it's ha- the first so hate eight... on me, people on Twitter. For, yeah. if you're, you know, so yeah. go yeah, well, for I, I've owned my dislike of Gone Girl. So, and that's gotten me some... <laughs> Some Instagram. Uh, yeah, we're, we're honest, right? right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, so The Beekeeper's Apprentice, and it's one first of eight? I first did not realize eight. it was a series. Yes. Oh. So, and they, so that, I think it was published in 1995. Okay. And so then they've kind of ticked off every couple, you know, one or two, three years after that. So I binged at the library, and I um, got all through uh, book five. Wow. Yeah. So wow. unfortunately, the book two I had to put on hold. I'm hoping uh, we leave tomorrow for a little short family trip up to Victoria, British Columbia, to the site of where I qualified for Boston, uh, going there for an overnight and then to Port Townsend, Washington for a couple nights to see family. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So, so Boston. So um, how do you feel that you will not, you will not be there? Because you've run Boston how many times? Twice. Twice. Oh, it seems like more than that. No, I qualified all six times, yeah. but yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. No, no, oh, that. No. Well, it was funny because I was running the other day, and as you know, I'm doing the heart rate training, so mm. I was, you know, you know, waving to the tortoises that were passing me, <laughs> and a young woman came out of her house, and I was running in a Boston shirt, and she said, oh, are you going to Boston this year? And I said, no. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, I don't know if I'll qualify again I don't I, I don't know I mean I, I may wait a while when I get to the you know the really where they really give me a lot of time but this is going to be your second right it is going to be my second it's and I'm exciting uh it is exciting I'm hoping for better weather than 2012 it was mm. exceptionally hot um I have been dealing with a lot of wind and some rain during training so I feel I am prepared um and gosh I just have been having some great workouts lately oh good just great oh, good. I mean I um so um, I work with on training peaks with my coach and um at the uh, and after a workout I put in she can see my data from my GPS that it gets uploaded to it but then I also give her feedback in the comments and so that I said oh if we could just bottle the way I feel and perform today and open it up on uh you know April 18th I said our work here would be done it just I had to do um Warmed up for, I'll bore people with the details. I had to warm up for 20, I warmed up, got to warm up for 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nothing about Had half. the pleasure <laughs> yes, of warming exactly. up for 20 minutes. <laughs> and then did um, eight str- hundred meter strides and then had to go into 15 repeats, one five of um, 45 seconds at um, building to 5k feel okay. and then 15 seconds of recovery. 15 seconds went by far too quickly. Um, and then, uh, and then straight from that into four times two minutes at, um, eight fifty to a nine minute pace, which is slightly, um, probably not more, a little more than slightly faster than my race pace will be. Mm-hmm. And then one minute of easy. So do that four times. So two minutes, one minute and gosh, just felt like grease lightning. Oh man. I mean, <laughs> oh man. And, um, particularly after the strides in the 45 seconds at 5k feel, it just the 850 to nine minutes just felt so controlled and doable. I just was elated at the end of that. And then, um, you know, trotted the 20 minutes to get home. And oh my goodness, just and then did these um, dynamic flexibility drills that I very often do after a run. And I love them. I love them. They feel you do. Oh, I love them. Oh, gosh, it's everything I can do to do a a warm up and a warm down. And I know I should but I, I don't know what, so before the workout, I do this lunge matrix where you do five different types of lunges. You do a forward lunge and then a forward lunge where you twist over the leg that's in front 
then you do side lunge and then kind of back at an angle and then back lunges. And so you do um, sets of 10, so five per leg on each of those. So do those and that kind of wakes up your glutes and says, hi, hi, who glutes, yeah. you're going to get, yeah. going yeah. to need you today. <laughs> and then... Um, Love you, glutey. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, and then these dynamic flexibility drills and they just usually after a hard workout that I kind of feel like creak 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 you know kind of having to pull myself into it and I just felt even limber just at the start of them and oh, limber wow. for me is a very relative term let's bear in mind no one was confusing me with a gymnast out there but um just felt I don't know I, I just really have to bottle this feeling and this attitude and um uncork it on April 18th but those are worth it gold mm-hmm. I love when you end up a, a end a hard workout feeling like that mm-hmm. it's just amazing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so and I have 20 to do this weekend okay and I'll be by myself up in Port Townsend but it's a fabulous place to run they have this great um flat mostly paved trail that goes through just beautiful uh you know wooded settings and some views of the water up there it's on Port Townsend's at the very tip of the Olympic Peninsula which is um, west of west and a little south of Seattle, if people want to try to envision it. And um, it just, I just love running up there. So um, I'm, I'm not dreading it. I'm really Good. looking forward to it. Good. Yeah. Is their weather supposed to be better than ours? Or mm, yeah, it's it's likely it'll probably be raining. But I mean, it's it's pretty covered. I mean, because a lot of it is um, evergreen trees, so we don't have to worry about the fact that the leaves aren't very big right mm-hmm. now or mm-hmm. out at all yet. Right. So. Um, so yeah, today let's talk about our guest. Today we're joined by a wait for it, a male guest, um, Mr. Ambie Burfoot. And Ambie has been a Runner's World editor for more than three decades. In 1968, he won the Boston Marathon, and he's racked up more than 110,000 miles in his life. Ambie is here to talk with us about his seventh book, which is entitled First Ladies of Running, 22 Inspiring Profiles of the Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Visionaries Who Changed the Sport Forever, which debuts on April 5th. But before we welcome Ambie, let's hear from a sponsor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome, Amby. We're delighted to have you on the show. It's very nice to be with you. Great. So let's start by fleshing out your running career for listeners. Tell us how you got into running and what it's like to be the first person across the Boston Marathon finish line in 1968. Gee, this could be a one-question interview. (laughs) No. uh, (laughs) uh, I got into uh, running as the son of a YMCA director. So I did all sports when I was young and uh, practiced them obsessively. I've always had an obsessive side to my personality and I would say I got quite skilled at sports like baseball, basketball, etc. and thought I was quite good at them but what happened was I arrived at high school and I found out it took more than skill. It took uh, power, muscle, sprint speed, things I didn't have and so I was on the JV basketball team my 10th in 10th grade but I was literally the last person on the bench and the coach put me in once when we were behind by 37 points with six seconds (laughs) remaining. He figured that was a safe bet. And uh, so I was at the bottom of the bench, but uh, one day we were having a basketball practice and the coach was mad at us because we were so bad. And so as all coaches did for punishment, he sent us out to run the cross country course. So here I was out on the cross country course with 20 guys who were all better basketball players than me. And I beat them home on the cross-country course. <laughs> wow. And, you know, there you go. You, you, you evaluate your two options. Would you like to be the last person on the basketball, JV basketball team or would you like to try this new sport, cross-country? So I tried cross-country and, and had the astonishing fortune that my high school coach and English teacher at my high school, Robert Fitch in Groton, Connecticut, was literally the best runner in the United States, a Boston Marathon winner, a two-time Olympic marathoner, an eight-consecutive-year winner of the National Marathon Championships in Yonkers, New York. 
and the smartest, most amazing uh, individual I've ever met in my life. Uh, I won't go on endlessly, but in the <laughs> early 60s when nobody else knew what organic gardening was, he was doing it. Big mm. compost pile full of worms in the backyard. Uh, when no one else knew who Rachel Carson or DDT or environmental concerns were, he was practicing them rather than riding in his polluting car vehicle to school <laughs> to teach every morning. The infernal combustion engine is what he called it. Rather than driving the car to school, he either ran to school or rode his bicycle to school every day and did that on the return and was an Irishman and an English lit uh, aficionado and, and, you know, the full package. And I just fell raptured at his feet uh, learned everything that there was to know about running from him, and his name was John J. Kelly, not to be confused with John A. Kelly, who was old John in the Boston Marathon. John J. Kelly taught me everything about running and a lot more about the even more important things, various aspects of my life, which I've used as a guide and touchstone ever since. Nice, nice. And then you were you were going to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be the first man to cross the finish line in Boston. That was in 1968, correct? That is correct. And I've had uh, nearly 50 years to practice the answer to that question, and I can't <laughs> and I can't say that I've ever come even remotely close to it uh, to win the Boston Marathon when you're 21 as I oh was, wow. uh, is ridiculous, of course. What can you appreciate when you're 21? Uh, I can Except say, drinking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can say that as young as I was, uh, from the first, my first mile of running and of reading about running, because I was a, you know, nerdy, studious type, I read everything there was, uh, it immediately became my lifelong dream to win the Boston Marathon as my coach and inspiration, John J. Kelly, had. And uh, to achieve it at uh, 21, as I said, is kind of ridiculous uh, and absurd. What I remember primarily about the race was that uh, I was lucky enough to break away with about five miles remaining. Uh, the crowds were so large then, even in 1968, and completely uncontrolled, there was no security, there was no police holding them back, that running through the uh, drunken college students the last four or five miles in Boston was exactly like pictures I've seen of the Tour de France so many times when oh, there are these word. crazy people in the road and you're fearful that they're going to obstruct the, uh, the cyclists. I would be running down a road at the end of the Boston Marathon, and it was completely filled with people in front of me. And uh, they would part when I got there, uh, a little bit Moses-like, although I don't want to go too far with that metaphor. <laughs> and they would part and let me through, and then they would close up behind me. And I was absolutely convinced that somebody was going to overtake me. How could I be so lucky as to win the Boston Marathon? So I was constantly looking back to see who was coming. But because the crowds filled in and back of me, I couldn't tell. And my uh, feeling, my experience at the head of the Boston Marathon, running by yourself with crowds filling behind you, I figured I was going about 10-minute pace. I figured the entire field was probably going to pass me in the last two miles because it just felt so excruciatingly difficult and slow. And yet somehow I got there and somehow I crossed the finish line and, and I have photos of myself collapsing into the arms of Jock Semple, the irascible oh, uh. race director. And I look exactly like a six-foot-tall noodle collapsing uh and that's exactly how i felt at the end of the boston marathon but wait were you wearing a watch i mean did you at least could you even look to see like oh okay well it was nine fifteen when i you know went by mile nine and now it's nine twenty, and here's you know mile 10 
you are making a lot of assumptions. <laughs> Let me, first of all, we, you know, we only had sweep second watches back then, so far as I recall, and I may or may not have been wa wearing one. I'll oh. have to look to see. But there were no mile markers on the course, oh. so you oh, didn't word. know where you were. And the mileage uh, points, what did they call them? The, the historic checkpoints of the Boston Marathon uh, ran, uh, didn't tell you how far you had gone, but they told you how far you had left. So <laughs> I got to Framingham at about the seven mile mark, whatever it was, and there's the first sign in the road. It was a large orange triangle in those days, and it says 19 and three quarter miles to go. <laughs> Uh, too bad I've never run that far in my life, and I'm already a little bit tired because I've just completed seven miles. So I'm thinking, oh, crap, this is not a good sign. Uh, yet I was young and strong and fairly fit, and I actually had a very good run that day. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, I'd say it was fairly good, yeah. Amby, you've been a uh, editor at uh, Runner's World since, what, 1978? That sounds right. Okay, can what are say one or two standout memories from your tenure there? Uh, you know, one of the early ones uh, that always comes to mind was shortly after it comes to mind shortly after I joined the magazine, and I was the East Coast editor. They were in California. I was in New London, Connecticut, of all places. I'm relaxing around the house one afternoon in 1978, I believe, and the phone rings. It's Runner's World. They're saying, Sebco just broke the world record in the mile. We just chartered you a plane to JFK. Pack your bags, get on the plane, get moving. <laughs> and I was like trying to find a pair of underwear to throw on my bags when, you know, 17 different departments of Runner's World called me with the same information. Each phone call interrupting my attempt to find underwear that I could throw into a bag. Uh, as it turns out, they had literally chartered a little um, two-engine prop plane from uh, Groton, Connecticut to get me down to JFK, and there they had booked a flight, and I jumped on a flight to England, and there was a car waiting for me. I, I can barely believe all this came together. I got in the car. I somehow drove to Seb Cove's house. I got to his house. I jumped out all excited, raced up to the door to knock on the door, and realized that I had locked my car, my keys in the car. So this oh. is the first, first little thing I did. And anyway, I knocked on the door, and the family greeted me quite warmly. And I said, you know, I've just I've locked everything in the car, my underwear, <laughs> my notebooks, <laughs> everything else. And Seb Coe says, oh, that's no problem. I went to summer camp last summer, and we spent the whole time learning how to break into cars. <laughs> <laughs> and he went out, and he had my car jimmied open in no time at all, and we set off uh, from there. Uh, Otherwise, my first Olympics uh, covering for, for Runner's World was 1984 in Los Angeles, oh, where wow. Runner's World had booked me a hotel room, which was, of course, only a two-hour commute from the uh, Olympic Stadium because <laughs> of how hard it is to find hotel rooms. Uh, at the same time, they had booked me a one-room office that was two blocks from the Coliseum, and I just said, well... Heck, I'm not, I'm not going to get on a bus and go two hours every every way. I'm going to spend the next two weeks of my life uh, sleeping in a lounge chair in this little office. <laughs> so I, I was, uh, sh you know, showering with a face cloth or washing off with a face cloth for two weeks. But at least I wasn't caught in traffic jams. I was near the action uh, of the, Olymp <clears throat> the Olympic Games. And, of course, there were so many spectacular moments at the 84 mm -hmm. Olympics. But number one for for me and so many others, was to be sitting in the stands in the Coliseum, 80,000 of us, when Joan Benoit Samuelson, Joan Benoit then, came through the marathon tunnel and into the finish to, to win the uh, Olympic marathon for women, the first one, uh, one that all of us had anticipated for decades. Uh, and the fact that she, an American, uh, a hero of so many runners was able to win in LA and beat some fantastic runners like Greta Weitz and Rosa Moda and Lorraine Moeller. Uh, it was just one of the shining moments of anyone's uh, lifetime in running. 
Nice, nice. So that leads us leads us to your book, and um, I have to ask the obvious here. You're a man. Um, so what prompted you to write a book about 22 noteworthy women runners? Yeah, you know, that came up early on when I tried to decide whether or not I should disqualify myself from writing the book for that very reason. Although there are those people who think Ambie is a female name since it's so unusual. So I hear you. I get I get used to get diesel mechanic applications when I was in high school for Ellison, Mr. Ellison. Exactly. Exactly. Androgynous names. But uh you know, I in the end uh, the day that the idea hit me, I sort of went onto the internet or somewhere and said, well, surely somebody has done this book already because we have all read bios, autobiographies of uh, Joni and Greta and Catherine Switzer, etc. But I looked around and I realized that nobody had pulled the stories together in one place and that no one had kind of given them an official title, whether you want to call it First Ladies of Running or the Pioneers of Women's Running or, or whatever. And so I thought, well, you know, this is a good project, not because I'm going to create a, a work of high literary merit, but because it's a completely redeeming and worthwhile uh, book project to put all these women together under one cover so that uh, for generations to come, other runners, women, men, we don't care what gender, uh, will learn about the, the women who were literally the pioneers and will always be the pioneers in the 60s and 70s. Well, it, um, it seemed to me that in the early cases uh, that you profiled, male runners were very encouraging, much more so than officials and even spectators. Why do you think that was? Oh, that's an easy one, and it's always a, a, a fun one to uh, answer. And, you know, as I put it in personal terms, uh, I was a skinny, nerdy, four-eyes, glasses type of guy who couldn't get a date to save my life. So, of course, <laughs> I was thrilled to have girls and women running races with us. And all of my fellow runners, and we were 100% male at that time. I mentioned that my first Boston was 1965, and there was not a single woman in that race. It was not until the next year that Roberta Gibb uh, showed up and ran. So, and the other thing is, not only were we lacking uh, female uh, participation with us, but in the 60s, if you were a runner and marathoner, you were a general outcast. You were generally on the fringes of society. You were weird and not to be trusted or looked up to. So, you know, we were happy to have anybody else come out onto the roads and join us and, and grow the community. And it didn't, we didn't care what your race or religion or gender or anything else was just come on out there and join us and let's see if we can grow the numbers of people uh, in this sport a little bit solely so that those of us who are doing it won't be regarded as complete freaks as as we often felt at the time oh my goodness so then just to get a sense of perspective so with all the 1965 how many men were running the boston marathon at that time the, there's, the, the recording is not very good. The historical record is not very good. But there were something like 500 people, 500 men would have entered and maybe 400 showed up at Boston and run in 1965. Wow. That's just crazy to think about. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. So with, with the Boston Marathon coming up um, in a few weeks, let's focus a few questions on that legendary race. Um, one chapter in your book spotlights Roberta Bobby Gibbs, who you met, just mentioned, who was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon, but she did it without a bib. Do you sometimes think it's unfair to Bobby that Catherine Switzer is the woman most people think is the first woman to run Boston because she did it the following year wearing a bib? Well, most people do, in fact, think that Catherine was the first woman to run Boston, and that's because, of course, of the uh, widely publicized and horrifying photos of Jock Semple bearing down on her, trying to remove that uh, number from her sweatshirt, whereas Roberta ran largely unknown uh, in the middle of the pack until she 
across the finish line. And then, you know, then the papers did quite a bit of coverage of her uh, the next day in Boston. But, you know, her race did not produce photos like Catherine's. And Catherine uh, uh, just got all the publicity in the world because of those horrifying uh, photos. And, of course, Catherine went on to spend a wonderful career in sports promotion, specifically women's running promotion, and was one of the three or four women runners highly influential in getting the Olympic marathon installed in 1984. So so she's just been as good an ambassador of the sport as anyone could possibly be. Uh, yet the fact remains that Bobby came a year before her and in a funny way is Catherine's alter ego. Catherine is a corporate woman, if you will, and God... Thank you for some wonderful corporate women doing good work in the world. Roberta is a shy, retiring artist innocent who ran and runs only for the thrill of, of movement and nature and the environment and never gave any thought to running fast or doing anything except uh, knocking down some of the false beliefs that said women couldn't run marathons and couldn't go to medical school and couldn't uh, have legal careers and couldn't do this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and uh, I think it's worth noting that the race in 66 was six years before Title IX, seven years before Billie Jean King and, and Bobby Riggs. So the whole uh, women's sports movement was not yet at anything like a, a, a wave. It was a ripple. <laughs> and it needed people who were as quiet as Roberta Gibb was at the beginning to, to start the ripples that became the waves, that became the women's running boom and, and revolution that we have all enjoyed so much for the last 30 years or so. 50 years on, the Boston Marathon is acknowledging that she was number one. They have named her the Grand Marshal of the race. Uh, many of us have written articles about her which are starting to appear now and will become quite, uh, quite a bit more than a trickle in the next couple of weeks. And she is going to get uh, a lot of um, notoriety or recognition, let's say, for the fact that she was – first and you can never take first away from anyone so uh, she made an incredibly brave and important step forward for women's running oh that's great she's going to be honored at, at this year's and and called out and and um heralded is probably a better word um at this year's boston marathon do you know if she gonna be there or no oh she's certainly going to be there and as i said you you there are a lot of articles coming out in the next couple of weeks and in in a matter of minutes i'm gonna do a facebook post uh, announcing that uh, 12 boston marathon winners have formed a group uh that has launched something called the bobby gibb marathon sculpture project the goal is to raise funds so that Bobby Gibb, who is a professional, accomplished sculptor herself, can sculpt an image of herself from the 1966 race, the first woman at Boston, uh, to be placed, the sculpture to be placed somewhere on the Boston Marathon course. So it will be a wonderful uh, monument to the importance of women's running in the Boston Marathon and worldwide and to the fact that uh, Bobby Gibb was first. Fantastic. Yeah, Love that. that. Yeah, that's Love great. That. And while we're still talking about Boston, um, can you talk a little bit more about the evolving of uh, Boston qualifying times for women? I know that when my uh, fellow Southerner, Gail Barron, qualified back in the mid-1970s, it was 3.30 across the board. Is that correct? You know, I'm not even sure, and I have to acknowledge I haven't followed all the qualifying time adjustments in, in recent years. Uh, there have been years when I've done it very, very closely, but not so much the last four or five years. All righty. So let, let's talk about... Um, Joan Uliot. Is that, am I saying that last name correctly? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, unlike most first ladies, she wasn't a runner as a teenager. She picked it up as an adult and she made some classic errors, especially putting speed above everything else. She would get injured and then have to start over. Do you think her training history speaks to a lot of start as adult runners? I, I, I think it does, certainly. Uh, we all know that the biggest mistake all runners make, uh, male or female, is 
too much, too soon, too fast, et cetera, and getting injured and then getting frustrated and then maybe not sticking it out and realizing that uh, big progress in running comes from very slow, incremental, gradual steps. Uh, we're all agreed on the fact that it is a slow, gradual process. But when you're in the – if you're in your – what was she, mid-20s or early 30s at that point, you know, you're young and strong and healthy. You kind of think you can do anything and you kind of think the goal is to run faster every day. Uh, I often say that the first smart runner has yet to be born, <laughs> which, which is my way of saying that we all recreate the mistakes of those who came before us. And even though runner's world can tell everyone the right gradual way to train and you guys can tell people the right way to train when you're in the middle of a good streak and you're feeling strong and you're getting faster in every 5k you you hit that point where you feel kind of invincible and you start to believe that you're the exception to the rule and that of course is exactly when you get injured <laughs> and when you have setbacks and when you have to learn that uh, to some degree, running is a process of constantly beginning over again because, yes. you know, you guys are all about uh, women who run through their pregnancies and with their children and things like that. Uh, the big message is that it, it's always worth it, I think, to get to, to the end of the process. You just have to realize that it can be slow getting there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. yep. Yeah. A lot of our listeners certainly do know that. Yeah. And a lot of our listeners also um, struggle with issues with husbands and families, time elements. Uh, several of the women you featured had women, uh, excuse me, had husbands who either ran with them like Sarah Mae Berman and or were very encouraging like the spouses of Mickey Gorman and Greta Waits. Um, those marriages seemed to survive, whereas other first ladies of running had marriages that ended as their running progressed, sometimes because their husbands weren't runners. Am I on track with that observation? Uh, first, yes, you are, and thank you so much for reading the book closely enough to be able to, to retell those stories to me. Um, I, I don't know if, there, if there's a rule, rule or, a, or a theorem there that, uh, about uh, runners and marriages and spouses going both ways. Uh, I think the biggest thing that happens is not the fact that one's spouse is not a runner per se, that you're not sharing the miles on the road. The biggest thing that happens is that runner can, running can change all of us substantially, uh, emotionally, psychologically, goals and outlooks. And I think that e emotional and psychological independence that we gain from running and a stronger belief in ourselves, I think that can test marriages that aren't built on a, on a firm foundation of independence and mutual independence and mutual support. So I, I really think it's the physical leading into the psychological domain that uh, most often leads to the problems, if that's the question you were asking. I'm not sure it is. <laughs> Well, I think that I think that shows a lot of insight. I think that also sp speaks to my question about you know, okay, you're a man. Why'd you write this book? I mean, it shows that you have a sensitivity to to what it is about how running can change, particularly women. I think so. Um, so my hats off to you, Ambie, for having that answer. Um, Thank you. So we were fascinated by you ending the book with a chapter about Oprah Winfrey mm -hmm. and your and your solid reasoning for including her. So how much of her ability to convince women to run marathons do you think was a reflection of her celebrity and how much was due to a mindset of, well, if she can do it, so can I? Really a combination of the two. If you don't have the celebrity that Oprah had, then nobody's paying attention to you, which is probably the way uh, lots of mid-pack runners, whether they like it or not, are forced to run in anonymity uh, most of the time. And, and I think that's where they eventually gain the independence and, and self-esteem and, and strength to carry on. But Oprah had huge worldwide uh, knowledge promotion platform. Plus, everybody knew that she was overweight. Everyone knew that she had lost weight, gained weight, lost weight, gained weight. Uh, everyone knew that she was from an African-American uh, 
women's community that suffers disproportionate health uh, problems. And, and so I think in the end it was this, if Oprah did it, you know, so can you, or if Oprah did it, so can I, because a lot of people are not as overweight as she was and, and didn't have as much emotional childhood baggage as uh, Oprah did. Uh, the, the astonishing thing was that I ran the marathon with her. I was just in D.C. to speak at the Marine Corps Marathon. None of us us knew she was going to be there. We all knew she was running a fall marathon. We all assumed that it would be in her home community of Chicago, which was then the week after Marine Corps in D.C. So uh, the story broke that Oprah was running in Marine Corps just the afternoon before the race, and I was there in town, and I sort of had this thought, well, if the most famous person ever to run a marathon is uh, going to run tomorrow morning in D.C. and I'm here, well, I'm going to run with her. <laughs> so I stood out at the, in the rain at the three-mile mark in the Pentagon parking lot, and she came through looking very unhappy about the rain uh, <laughs> with a hoodie trying to keep the, the early rain off of her, a small contingent of uh, runners around her, including uh, guys from the National Enquirer on each side of her who had been <laughs> flown in at the last minute to bird dog her the entire race in case something <laughs> untoward happened to her. Oh, goodness. And I just fell in and, and watched, and uh, I followed about 10 yards behind as quiet as I could and was astonished. Uh, this poor woman, uh, you know, every single runner in the race came, who saw her came up to her and slapped her on the back and said, Oprah, it's so great. You're out here. You're an inspiration. Good luck. We love you. And in the early miles, she would turn and she would wave and she would acknowledge and all of that good stuff. But then you get too tired for that. So at the 15-mile mark, people are still coming up to her, still doing that, slapping her on the back. She's got no energy left to acknowledge people any longer. Uh, and so I had this wonderful vantage point of watching her run the whole race. At one point, the National Enquirer guys who knew some running said to her, hey, the guy behind you is a former Boston Marathon winner. So she actually turned around and extended a hand to me, and we shook hands, and later the National Enquirer sent me that photo because they had photographers on motorcycles covering her every stride. Uh, and I just thought it was one of the, the bravest and toughest marathons that I'd ever seen anyone run. And she finished in 429, which, as we all know, is a highly respectable time. I looked it up the other day. It's about 15 minutes faster than the average women's marathon time now. And uh, so she really put in the work and proved that she could do it. I know you're, it, it, you know, I, I think we all, or at least well, reading your book, I thought I totally knew the story of Oprah running it. And there was so much more detail, and particularly the part about all the people coming up and saying stuff to her. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, the, the energy that she had to expend to acknowledge those people in the early miles, yet she was still able to pull in a 429.20. And I just thought, oh, you know, I mean, what what could she have done if she didn't have to say, you know, thank you and write on you're doing a good job, too, to, you know, hundreds of people. That That is exactly the point. She had to put up. You know, all, with much more than any of the rest of us, the rest of us know that the marathon is all about energy management, and we so carefully manage our, our every calorie during the race, and she didn't have the, that opportunity. I'll tell you a funny, quick anecdote if there's time. Oh, yeah. She, she was hydrating well throughout the race. Oh, yeah, this oh, was great. Yes. Yeah. 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 We, we so, love TMI, so bring on this anecdote, Amy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, uh, she's hydrating well throughout the race, and we go past these, uh, this row of porta johns at about the 20-mile mark, and I suddenly realize that, that Oprah's looking at them and looking at them and looking at them <laughs> as she goes past. And obviously, she wanted to go duck into a portage on and relieve herself. But also, the National Enquirer photographers were on motorcycles on either side of her. And there was no way that she was going to give them the possible pleasure of <laughs> photographing comes out her. comes out of a porta potty, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. And, and as I recall, she was wearing kind of light gray, um, almost like 
capris practically, the loose fitting one. So, so if she'd, you know, just let it go on the fly, there would have been a, sta- a telltale stain. <laughs> well, exactly. So mm-hmm. she just, she just trucked on and trudged through it and actually uh, picked up her pace going up that steep, nasty hill up to the Iwo Jima Memorial. And she was passing people at the end of the race. It was very, very impressive. Wow. Nice, nice. So, and then also, I love the detail about the, not to give away the entire chapter, but the um, the mile 25 marker was in the wrong spot and that you ran ahead. Tell, tell, that, tell that bit of the story, please. Well, yeah, so Oprah, I, I don't know what her goal was, but I think at the end it must have been to break four hours and, and 30 minutes, and she must have figured out her pace. And we were on that pace for sure all the way through the race, and then suddenly we got to the 25-mile marker, and the split for that mile, the 25th mile, was like 17 minutes. And she looked down at her watch and, you know, expletive deleted because <laughs> that meant she was going to, to lose her goal. And I am, you know, I looked at my watch too and I realized we hadn't in fact slowed down. And so I scooted up to her and said, don't worry, that mile mark was off. You're still on pace. Nice. And I don't know if she heard me or anything, but she, she kept trudging. There's no better word for Oprah's running form than just kind of <laughs> trudging. It was 50% mental and 50% moving those legs. Uh, but she kept going and uh, was very strong at the end. Oh, my goodness. So have you ever had a chance to talk to Oprah about, like, if she ever had you as a guest on the show or anything? I've never been a guest on the show. My wife has been to the show, but uh, she did leave a message on my phone at work. She called one day. We put her on the cover of of Runner's World magazine, and she called shortly after that. And unfortunately, I was out uh, for for a lunchtime run. (laughs) She she left a message, unmistakably Oprah, saying that it was her favorite of all the thousands of magazine covers she had ever been on to be on. On, you know, an athletic magazine cover. So uh, I saved that tape for a long time and it got played at corporate meetings at Runner's <laughs> World, things like that, because nobody else got calls from Oprah. But, um, oh my goodness. No, we, we've sent her a contact of the book. I don't, uh, we've sent her a copy of the book. I don't believe anyone has heard from her yet, but uh, fingers crossed. Oh yeah, well I'm sure Oprah listens to another Mother Runner podcast. So so I, you're in Ambi. I'm just every sure week. of it. Yeah. Definitely. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's been really fun talking with you, Ambi. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Ambi. Absolutely. It's been fun talking with you too also. such fun. I mean, I think about all the history that he's witnessed. It's amazing to think about. And that he ran and won at age 21. Oh, I know. Uh, the Boston Marathon winner at 21 years old. Right. I think about how I was at 21, and it's uh, there's absolutely no way I could have handled that in all areas. Right, right. And with no watch on and no no oh, mile markers. Gosh, no mile markers. No, and no. I particularly like that the mile marker was 19 and three quarters of a mile left. It's like, did you really, couldn't you have moved it a quarter mile? Right. One way and say, hey, right. you got 20 miles right. left. Well, and it also reminds me of people that spectators that when you're at mile 20 will yell to you in a marathon, you're almost there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, but it was fascinating. And I, I, I love the book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, particularly some of the early women that I didn't know that much about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just, it really is, it seems on the one hand so long ago, and the other hand just yesterday. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. And I think about how things have changed since I started running. I think I ran my first race in 1980, and unless you were a winner, you didn't get anything. And you know, So no medals. Oh, no medals. No, mm-hmm. you didn't get it. There was no such thing as a finisher's medal. In fact, I'm trying to remember the first time I got a finisher's medal. I think it was a half marathon out here maybe in like 97 or 98. Oh, was, my goodness. I was amazed. I thought, why am I getting this? <laughs> I didn't do anything. Right. <laughs> or did I? <laughs> so that has really changed. Yeah. So and you, uh, since we're um, a podcast, people can't see, but you brought one of your um, 
you brought a, a trophy with my you. My first trophy, which I got for uh, second overall women, which, let's listen, ladies, this was 1980, and I was probably one of about 17 women. <laughs> but the funny thing was, I remember at the awards ceremony, there were all these trophies for the men, uh, you know, and different age groups. But the women, they had these I think three trophies just lined up, uh, and I look at it now and I realize it's a guy. <laughs> My trophy says it doesn't. It just says women second place, and the name of the race, and uh-huh. then there's a a young man on top of it. So <laughs> he's your little valet who's going to carry I, you. <laughs> right, right. That's so a lot has changed, and yeah. and I thought he did a magnificent job of really sort of painting that and some of the things these women had to go through mm-hmm. to pave the way for the rest of us. Right, right. Well, we appreciate their effort and we uh, appreciate Amby chronicling it. Yes. Yeah. So now let's hear from Dimity in the Train Like a Mother Club. Hello, hello. It's Dimity here in Denver. Snowy, blizzardy Denver. We just got over a foot of snow and I am on my second out of school day, which is fine, except for that it's crazy sunshine out. I know that the transportation to school is the issue, but kind of drives me crazy when it's beautiful outside and the kids are not in school. Anyway, here with your train like a club challenge corner. And I want to give a huge hat tip to everybody in the 5k run walk program. They are just starting out or just coming back to it. And I don't know if you remember this, but it is really hard to find your running groove that very first time or that to refine it after maybe months, many months or many years. And um, they are just soldiering along and just kicking ass. So um, Melissa kind of sums it up with this this great um, post on Facebook, Melissa from Texas. Ah, I couldn't wait to get home and share this with you all. For those of you following me, you know I struggled with running 30-second intervals and then one minute for the next two weeks. Today is week four, and I did two-minute intervals. It was slow, and I'm okay with that because it will go faster after I build up time, but I did two minutes of running and two minutes of walking. I'll be honest, at first I was embarrassed to do that slow of a run. The lady next to me was walking way faster, but then I pushed that aside and told myself that I could care less about what others think. I am doing this for me, and I am, capital A, capital M, going to do it. And I just, that is, that's it in in a nutshell, Melissa. It doesn't matter how fast you go, how far you go, it's just that you go and everybody in this run walk program is epitomizing that in their own little mother runner way. So congratulations to all of you guys. In the meantime, just wanted to remind you if this is something that you feel like could benefit you, in our last wave of the 5K challenge, a 5K run walk and the 5K race kicks off on Monday. This Monday, the 31st, I believe. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. Maybe it's the 26th. I don't know. Whatever Monday is. <laughs> um, and uh, so if you want to sign up, go to trainlikeamother.club and um, and we can get you signed up. And otherwise, our next challenges are going to be starting fairly shortly and we will have details about that soon. So um, good luck, everybody. Have a great rest of your run and I'll talk to you later. All right, listeners. I now have a little favor to ask of you. Coach Christine Hinton and I are recording a podcast early next month about finding your finish line, part of a project sponsored by Highlands. Here's the gist. Everyone who finishes a marathon covers the same 26.2 miles, but each of us crosses a personal finish line, whether it's running to convince yourself that you're not getting older, you're getting better, or running to raise money for a cause, or running to show your friends, family, and yourself that you're stronger than you thought. Whatever your motivation, you're finding your own finish line. We'll be talking with three mother runners involved with the Highlands Project who are running the Boston Marathon for the first time after narrowly missing out on qualifying. We want to mix in stories and voices from other women runners. Please record a 60 to 90 second voice memo on your phone about finding your finish line in any distance race and email it to us at runmother at gmail.com, please. 
Start the voice memo by saying your first name and where you live. We're hoping to get a bunch of Find Your Finish Line voice memos. So please email us yours. Again, that's to runmother at gmail.com by March 31st. And thank you. And wherever your finish line is, many happy miles. Happy miles.